Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, and welcome to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Philip A. Craig. We're going to be talking to Philip about his new book, The Bond of Grace and Duty in the Soteriology of John Owen, a book that's just been published by Founders Press. Philip, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you, Crawford. Glad to be here. It's great to have you here. Um, you've written this marvellous book, which we'll talk about in just a second. But before we do, could you tell us something about yourself? Uh, yes, Crawford. Um, I was uh, born as one of five sons to my parents in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, was able to start get some education at Yale University in direct studies in English Lit and also pursue um, a, a law degree at the University of Georgia. So it's sort of an unusual history in the terms of being a partner in a law firm before sensing God's call to, to uh, and, and I wasn't, a, you know, a person you were particularly <laughs> predicted to go into any kind of pastoral or theological ministry, quite the reverse. Uh, so this has been kind of a surprise for me that I would have never thought that I'd be uh, introducing a, a book on a theologian uh, to an audience uh, as I am today. Great. Now, you mentioned this is a book about a theologian. And as you explain in the, in the introduction, it's not just any old theologian. It's possibly the most important theologian from England or writing even in, in 17th century English. And that is John Owen. So who, who is John Owen and why does he matter? Yeah, John Owen is a remarkable figure. Um, they had, a theological conference was held uh, in the United States a few years ago with several prominent theologians, including uh, J.I. Packer. And the theologians, because of time constraints, all came at different times. They didn't get to hear the other people contribute. And at the end, they were each asked, what theologian has influenced you the most? And all three, without any kind of collusion or collaboration, said John Owen. Uh, so he is a remarkable theologian. I think his influence uh, transcends uh, the 17th. J.I. Packer said that his teaching on sanctification is incomparable. And that that has been my experience uh, after studying him, that I have just never run across his equal. So Owen was based in the 17th century. What kinds of things did he write about? Um, he wrote, um, he, he was an expert controversialist. He um, wrote against a number of opponents uh, to Christian teaching. For example, uh, the Socinians, um, whom we would today call Unitarians, um, the, of course, Roman Catholics. He was defending uh, the Protestant Reformation against encroaches that were being made there. Um, 
so he, he was an expert controversialist, but he was also a very practical theologian. He preached to a large uh, church uh, in London, about 1,700 people, and a gathered church often in the afternoons at Oxford. Uh, he was also vice chancellor of, of Oxford under uh, Oliver Cromwell and helped restore a lot of the luster uh, to the academic life at Oxford. And um, was a pretty remarkable person because it, it, this wasn't like the bare bones parliament. He didn't try to go out and recruit uh, just uh, evangelical Christians. He would find the scholar that he considered the most capable uh, for the position. Uh, so he was um, a, a gifted administrator um, and yet found the time to write Writings that are very practical in terms of t teaching uh, people how to become a Christian, uh, how to grow in grace once they've become a Christian. But what I like about him the most, I think, is um, Scottish divinity students used to refer to his writings uh, on sin and temptation as the knife because they were so searching. Uh, but a lot of it's very inspirational and big picture. Uh, where you understand how uh, amazing the, the whole plan of redemption is. You know, Christianity properly understood is much far more spectacular than Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia, much as I enjoy those. Uh, and, and Owen really brings out that big picture vision of the Christian life and of, of God's plan of salvation in a way that I find really remarkable, um, like many other people, uh, including Packer and Sinclair Ferguson over there. They never get tired of reading Owen. Now, you mentioned there, Philip, that Owen is well known as a controversialist. And of course, he writes a lot of books about different kinds of theological issues. But one of the, one of the issues that you're most concerned with in The Bond of Grace and Duty is the issue of antinomianism. Now, could, could, could you explain to us what that is and why Owen felt he had to respond to it? Uh, yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, antinomianism is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer refers to as cheap grace uh, teaching in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And it really severs the bond of grace and duty in the, in the Christian life. Um, there are a lot of underlying presuppositions uh, that antinomians have about the way the Holy Spirit works, uh, which wind up at the end of the day eliminating any sort of accountability for your Christian behavior. Uh, so human responsibility shrinks to the vanishing point, and they expect growth and holiness for Christians to be automatic. And, and that's just not true to Scripture. Uh, we're taught to grow in grace, and, you know, Peter and, uh, teaches us to add, you know, patience and self-control to faith. I mean, it's, it's, it's work. It's Holy Spirit-empowered work, but it's still work. And sanctification is struggle. Uh, there's a battle against um, what Owen would call the remainders of indwelling sin. Uh, which is a very formidable enemy and a lot of Christians succumb to. 
and so we have our ups and downs, but Owen is really very helpful in presenting um, detailed uh, directions that under the grace of God, he expects to guide you uh, in terms of being a Christian and learning, you know, for example, about dying to sin, which, you know, I don't think I ever heard anybody talk about dying to sin um, in any church I had ever gone to. And I remember seeing his treatise on mortification and thinking, that is this some sort of Roman Catholic writing? It's not. But um, he, he gets into areas uh, like spiritual mindedness that are just all too often neglected and have been neglected in the church, probably going back uh, to about 1850 or 1860. Now, was, was antinomianism a big issue in Owen's day? Surprisingly, it was. Um, it, yeah, it's interesting you, you mentioned this because uh, he didn't mention them by name, uh, the antinomian writers. And so it, it flew under the radar for a long time. And when I actually had my dissertation hearing in, um, it was 1999 or 2000, I can't remember exactly, uh, Packer flew in to Chicago from Vancouver. And the, the thing that he really was worried about was my identification of these antinomian opponents because it, it had not been brought out. Um, thankfully, during the period of time that I was um, finishing the dissertation um, and trying to make sure that I convinced him, uh, my first reader, of the correctness of my supposition, uh, a couple of books came out. David Como, uh, I think it was published by Princeton University Press, and another Puritan scholar named Theodore Bozeman, uh, which were tremendously helpful to me because they documented the presence of a very strong antinomian underground uh, involving about a dozen pastors in London, England, uh, in the 1720s. I mean, excuse me, the 1620s. And, uh, and they also documented that that antinomian underground through immigration uh, had a lot to do with the influence of antinomianism in the colonies, in New England in particular, and the New England antinomian controversy in the 1630s uh, is now viewed by scholars, and this is a fairly recent development, as coming from the British antinomian controversy in London uh, a decade earlier. So, you, you mentioned Bozeman and Como there, Philip. And that's right. You, you read their work quite carefully, but you propose a different way of thinking about antinomianism, don't you? That's, that's correct. I, I think it makes it's easier to identify. The problem with identifying antinomian you know, tenets or tenets, however you want to pronounce it, is that yeah, you know, you can multiply them almost indefinitely. Richard Baxter, I think in 1693, came up with a hundred mm. <laughs> that that he listed, and I prefer to focus on the underlying philosophical presuppositions that antinomians have. So, for example, one that's really strange is essentialism, the idea that we sort of become godlike when we're converted. You know, that's that's not Christian teaching. 
but you find it in the antinomians, uh, one of the, the family of love, a communitarian group that immigrated some of the members from the Netherlands to England. Um, they had the notorious expression that when you were saved, you were, uh, Christed with Christ and Godded with God. And that essentialism, the, the idea that you partook of the divine essence, uh, had ramifications in lots of other ways where, you know, you thought that sanctification was immediate and God pretty much perfected you, either perfected you at the moment of conversion or the other school of thought of the antinomians was that he couldn't see your sins. <laughs> uh, we, we still hear this sort of talk from TV preachers over here that, you know, when God uh, looks at me, he sees Jesus. <laughs> so that, that may be true on the day of judgment, but I don't think it's true right now. <laughs> I, I think he's, he sees your sins. And Owen would argue that he disciplines Christians as part of the sanctification process. So you've, you've put all this together. You've given us this very rich historical background, Philip, in the first few chapters of the book. And then you move on to talk about the bond of grace and duty, which is, of course, the title for the book, but also the means of grace in terms of preparation for grace and preparation for glory. Um, and underneath all of this, there's a theory of conversion, isn't there, uh, that, that Owen is interested in and uh, in, in developing. And you argue at one point in the book that the paradigm for conversion that Owen and other Puritans have, <clears throat> excuse me, is the conversion of Augustine. That, that's correct. That's correct. That was very normative uh, for them where conviction of sin was considered in adults, certainly, uh, to be an essential part of the process. And coming to sort of the end of yourself, that they believe that the law is preached uh, so that the seeking sinner will begin realizing that he's impotent to keep it in and of himself and, and will pray for the, for the Holy Spirit eventually see his need. Um, it makes a lot of sense psychologically that you you need to recognize you're a sinner before uh, you come to to seek a savior. But but the thing that really stunned me when I went to seminary coming out of law practice, for example, was how shallow the evangelism was in our churches. How we just would read over three or four theological propositions, ask um, the unbeliever to nod his head or um, indicate assent, and then pray a sinner's prayer. And we thought everyone was in the kingdom. You know, but it was sort of almost like a purchasing a fire insurance policy of some sort. But you wouldn't see much life change uh, in these people, usually none at all. And that was one of the great secrets uh, of the, the Graham Crusades. And, you know, this is a touchy subject because everybody knows relatives who – who were saved at some of those crusades. But his effectiveness largely resulted from the fact that he was preaching in most instances to children of, of parents who'd been Christians and had brought them up in the church. So they'd heard a lot of it already. But one of the less um, helpful secrets of that is that very few of the people who came forward at Graham Crusades were ever integrated into the life of the church or continued as Christians, the, the figure is uh, below 5%. It's, it's really low in the 2 to 4% range. 
And, and the Puritans would not have recognized that as true evangelism, where the evangelism does not lead into the pursuit of holiness and sanctification. And Owen had a great paradigm, I think, for the important things in life. The, it was important to get saved. It was important to know you were saved. Uh, it was important to pursue holiness, glorify the Lord. And it was also very important to be useful in your generation. So Owen's drawing a lot of this then from Augustine, but you also show in the book that he, he is, these ideas are echoed in Calvin as well, aren't they? They, they are. And I, and I made sure to show that because I know my, my Calvinistic brethren um, are all too quick to reject teaching uh, if they don't think the master taught it. Okay. <laughs> so I, I didn't want to give them any wiggle room because it was very clear to me that part of evangelistic preaching just totally dropped out of the church's repertoire um, th that was common currency uh, back in the 16 and 1700s. And I think we're all the worse for it. And not, not to say that you've got to go through conversion in the same way as everybody else. But I think in general, the, the steps are there. The conviction of sin and the need for illumination are the same. The general pattern is generally the same. And the Puritan authors pointed out, quoted Solomon Stoddard and Cotton Mather, excuse me, Ken Crease Mather uh, from New England, who, who said that if, if we if this dropped out of evangelism, you know, this preparation for grace, uh, that it would be catastrophic. It would be evidence that people don't understand conversion and that pastors don't now don't know how to preach for conversion. And so that I mean, that's what I've seen. I became reformed in my theology coming out of a, a Methodist and then a dispensational background. And I was really expecting to run into people who had their act together and found that most of reform preachers fell in one of two camps. They didn't have any clue about this sort of preaching, uh, preparatory work of the law and preaching for conviction of sin, bringing a, a, a person to the end of him or herself. Um, they didn't have any clue about this. And they typically fell into one of two categories. One was the group who were, um, Armenian in practice, although claiming to be reformed in theology, where they would practice the sort of the Billy Graham decisionism, real pushy type of evangelism, um, and didn't really rely on the Holy Spirit to move. It acted as if the sinner had the power to, you know, semi-Pelagian, we would say, uh, to save him or herself at any time. And so, you know, where's the urgency for repentance uh, when you can put it off to your deathbed, so so the theory went. So you had that group on one hand, and on the other hand, you, you have a group that prides itself in getting doctrine right. When, and don't get me wrong here, I think doctrine is is extremely important, and and I value true doctrine uh, greatly, and Owen did as well. Um, but the, you know they are in common parlance known as the frozen chosen. So they don't do evangelism at all because they're tongue-tied 
and confused about the way to do it. And so I think Owen clears up that dilemma and shows how you can preach evangelistically uh, even when you believe in election and inability uh, and, and other Reformed doctrines. So I think biblical doctrines, of course. So, so you, you, you distinguish uh, in your book, Philip, between preparation for grace in Owen's idea, which is monergistic, and preparation for glory, which you tell us is synergistic in Owen's view. What, what does that distinction mean? First of all, preparation for grace and preparation for glory, and also the distinction between monergistic and synergistic. That's a great question. Um, preparation for grace is, is basically putting yourself in the way of salvation so that God can work. Um, I mean, not that God can't work without you. He can't. But use the means of grace. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How will they believe unless someone's sent, as, as Paul says in Romans? Okay, so that's the preparation for grace side of it. That's monergistic in the sense that the Sinner is completely passive at the moment of conversion. And, you know, God grants gifts us with the Holy Spirit at that time, renewing uh, the human faculties, uh, which were damaged by the fall and transforms those into instruments of faith and repentance and obedience on down the road. Uh, so, so that's monergistic in the sense that God does the work. And Owen glories that God's absolute promises of conversion are just that. They're absolute. God, you know, will bring home his elect. Um, and so that's, it's a great mercy. I personally was not looking when I got saved. And I think there are lots of people like that. But the monergism is one working. Uh, is the translation there, one working. Synergism is both working, and that's sanctification as you pursue holiness. I think the Philippians um, is is the best scripture for um, work out your salvation or sanctification, that can be translated, uh, with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you both to will, you know, to make you want, and to perform his good pleasure. So God works in and by and through us, um, I would say much in the same way that the Holy Spirit works in, by, and through Scripture. So you use that distinction uh, in, in the structure of the book in, in, in an important way, Philip. The central section of the book is taken up with Owen's discussion of preparation for grace. So what does what does Owen think preparation for grace involves in terms of illumination, conviction of sin, um, the possibility of legal reformation. Yeah, he he, he states that there are three duties um, that he, he expects three things to happen first, and uh, yeah, it is it is illumination uh, where God uh, through Scripture and especially the preaching of the Word uh, creates light in your mind. You start understanding the the, the plan of redemption. You start understanding who Jesus is. Uh, that he came to, to die for your sins and, and that he's come to save you. Um, so illumination is a key part of that. And also uh, conviction of sin, we've talked about that. Um, 
but but he does go on to, to emphasize the importance of legal reformation. And I've done a lot of evangelistic work, and this is really the way it happens, that when you witness to someone and, and share the gospel, so often the response is, wait, I'm going to go get my act together, and, and then I'll come back and talk to you. <laughs> and so, so legal reformation is trying to do it in your own strength, trying to be a moral or a good person. And that's the way people tend to try to want to handle this. <laughs> and it doesn't work because you, you really can't keep the law and you can't even keep the, the first you know commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Uh, certainly not your neighbors yourself um, without the Holy Spirit transforming you. There's just no way to do it. We're dead in sins and trespasses, as Ephesians 2 uh, suggests. Now, it really takes the Holy Spirit for us to see this because we naturally want to think that we're good people and that other people are good people. Now, depravity doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could potentially be, but it does mean that our faculties have been impaired by the fall. And so you'll see Owen in his work spends as much time unpacking the implications of natural depravity as he does in terms of unpacking uh, the importance of the great change that is brought about by regeneration, you know, when God quickens us. And he mentions the, the lexical usage in Scripture is that when, when it's talking about regeneration, um, it's always ascribed to God, and the verbs that, that are applied to us are always used in the passive, you know, that we are begotten again, that we are quickened. <laughs> so it's, it's a really powerful um, observation there, I believe. And that chapter on regeneration, Philip, stands between the section of chapters on yeah. preparation for grace and the next section of chapters, which are the um, which focus on preparation for glory. So in what way then does this preparation for grace, which feeds into and leads up to regeneration or new birth, how, did, how then does regeneration or new birth feed into preparations for glory? Yeah, preparation for glory cannot occur without regeneration. And Owen is is really strong on the way this happens in terms of you know, worshiping God, and so he deals with things like uh, meditating on the glory of Christ, uh, prayer. Um, but he also spends time talking about the importance of um, obedience, and and really treats that uh, as a means of grace in the sense that if you obey God in a, in a difficult situation. It makes it easier to obey him the next time. In the same way, conversely, if you sin, particularly the way people have a tendency to give in to darling sins, what the Puritans would call a darling or constitutional sin, um, that's something they just don't feel like they can live without, um, you're, you're easy prey the next time around. It's, it's even more tempting. Um, so you're absolutely right. The, the regeneration is, is totally necessary. I can speak as someone who, you know, can point to a specific time. And, um, you know, about age 24, when I reread scripture, I had been to law school. 
and all those hermeneutical rules <laughs> that, that I learned in law school made it very impossible for me to escape the clear import of Jesus's teaching. I mean, you know, C.S. Lewis said, liar, lunatic, or Lord. And I mean, it, he clearly was claiming to be God. I grew up in the period of time where theologians, particularly in the 60s, were acting like New Testament scholars had mis- New Testament scholars had a new reading that he wasn't claiming to be God. I beg to differ. He's claiming to be God on every page of the New Testament. Uh, power to forgive sins before Abraham was I am, uh, citing Moses, um, what Moses was told God's name at the burning bush. Um, clear identifications. John's gospel is full of them, of his preexistence and eternal. Restore to me, Father, John 17, the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And that that glory is, is the subject really of chapter 13 as well, isn't it? That, that, that preparation for glory is bound up with our anticipation, Owen says, of the glory of Christ. And of course, Owen writes a whole book about the glory of Christ, doesn't he? And it's a big theme of his of his later um, writing career and, and and preaching ministry too. So how how is the glory of Christ represented in all of this in terms of preparation for glory? Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting because if you read the chapter on dying to sin, mortification, uh, there's a problem with prior accounts of that that have been given uh, by different scholars in that they go to Owen's treatise on mortification, uh, which was preached to, I believe, undergraduates at Oxford uh, when he was vice chancellor. Uh, and they assume that that's his last word on the subject, whereas he, about 20 years later, in his systematic theology of the Holy Spirit, pneumatologia, which is a marvelous work. And I'll stop here just to say, I think Owen... <laughs> I was amazed how much he knows about the Holy Spirit. And I think he knows a whole lot more than we do uh, in the contemporary church. And I think we have a tremendous amount to, to learn from him. Uh, but he emphasized in pneumatologia for the first time, uh, much more powerful teaching of mortification that it depends on love because you love, you become like whom the person whom you love. And it also creates assimilation where you become more like that person's image. I mean, you've often heard it remarked that married couples start looking alike, you know. Um, I, don't, I don't know if my wife's real happy about that, but um, <laughs> but, um, but but it's a very profound teaching that you really need to focus on the person of Christ and his glory to be transformed for that from that one degree of glory to another. And Owen says the problem with the vast majority of Christians is in, in you know, the antinomians are one group, but there's another group that's even larger that unfortunately is content with what Owen describes as low measures of grace. And he doesn't want people there. He doesn't want people Christianity is not steady state. You're supposed to constantly be growing, uh, understanding more, developing more, and not settling for for mediocrity in in your walk. And it's hurt the church because the Christian witness uh, is compromised 
uh, when Christians are so uninspiring and often backslidden. So you've, you've, you've given us a real taster of the way in which Owen develops this theme in The Bond of Grace and Duty, your new book, Philip. But if we wanted to read beyond your new book into Owen himself, could you give us an idea for where we could begin? Um, sure. I, I I think I'll give you one recommendation from the objective uh, side, one from the subjective. The objective side, I think The Glory of Christ uh, is well worth reading. I mean, that's very inspirational to to reflect on the, the glories of, of his person and work. Um, can't get enough of it. Um, Great. Then, I'm sorry. And But on the subjective side, I would recommend um, most people start with Chapter 6, which is on sin and temptation. I personally, and, and you, I think, pioneered in, in this, uh, the, the importance of reading Owen and paying attention to the chronology of his writings. Chapter 7, I mean, excuse me, Book 7 or Volume 7 in the series um, on spiritual mindedness also has the Dominion of Sin and Grace and the, his treatise on apostasy, which in many ways modify chapters, volume six. I think volume six um, could lead to a sort of um, defeatism, if you will, if you're not careful. Because indwelling sin, you, you come away from that book, <laughs> you know, almost not sure. Owen feels that he must warn you about what a formidable enemy indwelling sin is, because this is who you've got to grapple with. First rule of war, know your enemy. But he almost does too good a job of it. <laughs> you know, you almost feel like throwing up your hands. But then when you get in, in volume seven, I, I think the teaching is, is more optimistic and more helpful about the prospects of real progress. Hmm. Well, that's something to, to perhaps that listeners might want to follow up with then in the volume seven of, of Owen's works. Philip, thank you very much for coming on to the programme today and for being willing to talk about your new book, The Bond of Grace and Duty. Thank you so much, Crawford. I, I do appreciate your having me and uh, I say hello to all my friends in the UK and uh, we enjoyed our um being in Edinburgh in 2001, 2002, visiting London and other beautiful spots over there. God bless you all. Good. Thank you, Philip. Listen, thanks for your time and take care. Thank you to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Mm-hmm.